welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text message at 209-340-3115. Have an amazing rest of your day. Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today, Mark 10. We're going to start in verse 32, and we're in a series. The series is called Who We Are. Who are we, (laughs) Shelter Cove Community Church? Well, we are defined by some core values. There are some principles that we adhere to, and if we ever deviate from certain principles, we will cease to be the church that we have claimed to be, the church God has called us to be. Some of those values that we've talked about in this series are the Word of God. First and foremost, we stand on the Bible. We believe it is God's Word and we teach it. We're committed to that. Second thing that we're committed to is community. Pastor Jeremy talked about that last week. You know you're not meant to live life alone. All right? Some of the singles are like, amen, heard that. You know, no, but we, we grow together. That's what I'm talking about. That's God's design. Today, we're going to be talking about the core value of serving, serving. We have created and seek to maintain a serving culture here because we believe that that is key to greatness in the eyes of God. I heard a story about the longest serving speaker of the house in the history of the U.S. Congress. It was a guy named Samuel Rayburn of Texas, and uh, he served as speaker years ago. He was beloved, well-respected by both parties, Republican and Democrat. That's a bit of an anomaly today. And here's a story that tells us what kind of man he was. He was neighbors with a guy that had a teenage daughter. And one night, tragically, unexpectedly, suddenly, this teenage daughter died. And the next morning, the speaker, uh, speaker Rayburn Soon as he heard the news, he was on their doorstop, the doorstep. He knocked on their door. The man opened the door. Naturally, he had been crying. He was distraught. And Rayburn said, I- I'm so sorry. I've just heard the news. Is there anything that I can do? And the man said, oh, speaker, that's very kind of you. I don't, there's nothing that you can do. We're just making the arrangements right now. And, and Rayburn said, well, have you at least had coffee yet? And the man said, no, we we haven't quite got around to breakfast today. And he said, well, could I at least come in and and make you coffee? And so they invited him in. They showed him to the kitchen. And there, the Speaker of the House of Representatives began to brew coffee for this family in their time of loss. He then turned to them. He said, could I trouble you for the use of your telephone? And so they said, not at all. And they showed him to the next room where there was a phone. And the congressman went in there. And the neighbor overheard him dialing. And he made a call to his assistant. And he heard him tell his assistant yeah, can you please call the White House to let them know I'm not going to be able to come to breakfast this morning. I have a friend in need. Give the president my regrets. I'm just not going to be able to make it. Now that's taking being a public servant literally right there. You see, greatness in our world is often tied to the circles in which we run, the people that we know, the appearances that we get to make at this event or that event, uh, the, the power, the authority that we wield, the size of our platform, how many eyeballs are on us at any given time. And I'm here to tell you today that in our text, Jesus is going to explode all of those myths about greatness. 
You see, he has been about the training of the 12 disciples. And today in this text, Jesus is about to make a seismic shift in the training of the 12 disciples about what leadership and greatness really is. What do you know about leadership? What do you know about greatness? I would wager that what you know, you have learned from the world. And I'm here to tell you, nearly everything you know is wrong. Because what the world often equates with greatness is really nothing more than fame, ultimately. And Jesus is not impressed with fame. He's impressed with greatness. And they're not the same thing. And the key to greatness is found in serving. That's what we're going to look at today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your word. I pray that as we study, you would show it to us. You would reveal it to us. May we grasp your paradigm of greatness, not the world's. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at this. I'm going to walk through this text today, and I'm going to show you through the words of Christ, through the responses of the disciples, the difference, the contrast between true greatness and false greatness. Take a look at verse 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, who are we talking about? This is Jesus and the disciples. They are walking toward Jerusalem. Now, during this season of their training, uh, the disciples are in a season of what was called uh, withdrawal. Okay? That's what scholars call this period. They had withdrawn from Jerusalem. They'd not been there, they'd not spent any time around Jerusalem. And the reason was, as Jesus had pointed out, there were people there that wanted him dead. And so they avoided it. I would have too. But he wasn't avoiding it because he was afraid. Jesus is scared of nothing. He had avoided it because he is God, he is sovereign, and he knows that the time had not yet come for him to do what his father had sent him there to do. But that time is soon approaching because it's springtime. Passover is nearly upon them. And so he is going to say very soon, as he says in John 17, my hour has come. And so it is nearly time for him to fulfill his purpose. So he is coming to Jerusalem. And the disciples, understanding what awaits him in Jerusalem, are reasonably nervous. This walk to the city must feel to them uh, as though they are soldiers on Higgins boats rocketing toward the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. There's a date with destiny and they're a little nervous and they observe and it says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. He's, he's undeterred. He's purposeful in his stride as he heads toward Jerusalem. It's almost like he can't wait to get there. And it says that they were amazed. They're just flabbergasted knowing what they know, at the uncommon courage of this leader, Jesus Christ, as he heads toward what will be an execution. And it's in John's gospel that we hear the words of Thomas. John quotes from Thomas, the realist of the bunch, the disciple Thomas, the guy who's always saying what's on his mind. He quotes him as saying, well, let us also go that we may die with him. You, you, you would never show your baby's pictures to Thomas because he would tell you exactly what he thinks, all right? Mark's gospel says those who followed were afraid. They're fearful. I mean, if death is waiting for Christ and they're with Christ, then by implication, what's going to happen to them? We don't see these guys afraid in the New Testament very often. They're never afraid in the presence of Jesus. The only time we see them afraid is on the Sea of Galilee when uh, they're in that storm and Jesus comes walking on the water and they shriek when they see him because they think he's a ghost. 
So the only time they're ever afraid is because of him. But then he climbs in the boat and the waves subside and there is peace. So every time they're in his presence, they have peace. But not now. They're worried. They're concerned. And he knows this. He senses it. And it says here, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. He turns to them and he says, take a knee. I'm going to walk you through everything that we're going to experience. Here's what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. And you need to know that I know everything that's going to take place. I will not be surprised by any of it. But there's a bigger reason why he's going to walk them through this detail by detail. He wants this to be the foundation for what he wants them to learn and apply in this area of greatness. And number one in your notes, you need to understand that true greatness is patterned after Christ's sacrifice. What he's going to endure in Jerusalem is the pattern for true greatness. So he takes them through it line by line. Look at verse 33. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, and that, that title, that phrase, the Son of Man, that is a title that Jesus uses for himself more than any other title. It's his favorite term for himself. You know why? Because in the book of Daniel... In the Old Testament, the prophet talks about a vision where he sees the Son of Man and he descends from heaven and to him is given a kingdom and all enemies will be put under his feet and he will have this everlasting kingdom. The Son of Man is a title for the Messiah, the chosen one. And so Jesus uses this title and when you hear that phrase, there's no mistaking we're talking about the Messiah. He's saying, I am that man. I am the Messiah. No matter what happens to me, I will be victorious. There will be a kingdom given to me and it will last forever and my enemies will be put under my feet. But the path to that victory and the path to that kingdom runs through Jerusalem and what awaits him there. And he says that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. I'm going to be delivered over. And this word delivered is not like Stevie Wonder, sign, seal, delivered, I'm your. It's not like that. Delivered means betrayed. It means betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief. And it's going to be one of you, by the way, disciples. You're going to hand me over to the religious elites, the, the Jews of Jerusalem, and they will condemn him to death. And he's saying that the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jerusalem Jews, they will take me, they will try me, convict me. They will take the one who is pure, who is innocent, who is holy, and he will be found guilty of high crime. It's a sham trial. It's going to be over before it begins. And then they will deliver him, the son of man, over to the Gentiles. It's a second betrayal. He'll be betrayed by a disciple, and then he'll be betrayed by the Jews because they're cowards and they're not going to deal with him. They'll hand him over to these bloodthirsty, sadistic, ruthless Romans. And what will the Romans do? Verse 34, and they, the Romans, will mock him. Is that going to happen? Yeah. And spit on him. Will that happen? Yep. And flog him. Are we going to read about that later? Yep. And kill him. He's going to go to the cross. But then what's going to happen? He says, and after three days, he will rise. Well, amen to that. But there's a whole lot of bad stuff that happens before you get to the glory right there. So in this narrative, there's a pattern. And you need to note the pattern. Suffering, condemnation, cross, death, 
then resurrection and glory, okay? And the disciples hear all of this, but they don't understand. And if you were to look at the parallel passage in Luke 18, it says all the same basic things that we just read, but it tells you something Matthew and Mark don't. It says this in verse 34 of Luke 18, but the disciples understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They are clueless about something. What are they clueless about? Well, they understand the flogging. They understand the spitting. They understand uh, you know, all of that stuff. What do they not understand? They don't understand the rising from the dead part. They have no frame of reference for that. Nobody's ever resurrected themselves before. Furthermore, it doesn't even make sense to them. They're saying, you have that kind of power? You can just rise from the dead? If you... Okay, help me out. If you have that kind of power, then why are you letting them hurt you in the first place? Why are you letting them spit on you? Why are you letting them punch you? Why are you going to let them put you to death if you can rise from the dead? If you got that kind of power, just smoke them, Lord. Just take them out. That's what we would do. And we, we kind of shake our heads at that. Oh, those silly disciples. Don't judge them too harshly. You wouldn't understand this either. You know, we, we've got the church and, and teaching on a weekly basis. They didn't have that. They don't, none of this makes sense to them. It would, be like, it would be like if Dak Prescott had given a press conference before the Cowboys playoff game and said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to run this bizarre quarterback draw and completely blow our chances to come back and beat the Niners. And we're going to appear to lose that game. But fear not, at the end of the season, the Niners will be put under our feet. And we will hoist aloft this Super Bowl trophy that is everlasting, a trophy without end, amen. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Yes, it is. You say, are you a little bitter as a Cowboys fan, Pastor Scott? Yes, I am. And I know that brings you great joy, some of you Niners fans. And I pray that God will revisit that joy upon you today. And the Raiders fans said, amen. <laughs> Not everybody gets the gospel the first time they hear it. It doesn't always make sense to them. But when you understand it and when you receive it, you can be born again. And that's going to happen for these disciples, but not, not yet. Not yet. They don't get it. And if you have any question about whether or not they get it, <laughs> you just look at verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, all right? Now, the sons of Zebedee, who is Zebedee? He's a guy. He's just a mortal human man. And they're his son. they are the sons of men. Okay, now watch this. There is no more impactful reality than to understand that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. And once they are the sons of God, what are they to do? They are to do what the Son of God did, humble themselves and lay down their lives for others. And if the Son of God could humble himself and lay down his life on the cross for me, then what could I not do to humble myself and lay down my life for somebody else? Only a Christian can really know that, and only knowing that can really describe a Christian. But as of yet, they don't get that. These sons of Zebedee, James and John, they come and they ask a ridiculous question. Take a look at this verse. It says, They came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, 
we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, that's kind of brazen. But you know what? They're not as brave as you might think. They're not asking this for themselves. They're not alone when they make this request. They've got somebody with them. You know who they got with them? They've brought somebody on this trip, you see. Someone to approach Jesus with them and to help them get clout by asking Jesus to do this thing for them, this special favor. You know who they bring with them? They bring their mom. (laughs) If you look at John's gospel, excuse me, Matthew 20, actually, they bring their mother, and we know who their mother is. And some of you have mothers, and you could totally picture your mom doing this. Excuse me, Jesus, can I have a word? I'd like to talk to you about my boys. <laughs> some of you are moms that would do this, all right? But, but in Matthew, it says they bring their mother, and we know her name. Her name is Salome, and we see her in various lists in the New Testament of the women that follow Jesus. And it usually goes Mary, that's his mother, and then Mary Magdalene, you know her. And then you got some other ladies, and then down the list, you got Salome, mother of James and John, or Salome, wife of Zebedee, or whatever. But there's one list that does not name her. It simply calls her Mary's sister. And so scholars think that this is actually the sister of of Mary, the mother of of Jesus. And so who's coming to ask this favor? It's Aunt Salome, Cousin James, and Cousin John. So what do you got here? You've got some relatives coming to Jesus asking for a favor. There's a word for that. It's called nepotism. That word nepotism comes from the word that, that, is, that is translated nephew, nephewtism, basically. All right? And you know the old story There's a company, and and somebody's nephew gets elevated to this high-profile job. Is it because they're qualified? Maybe. Could also be because Uncle Joe's the boss. And so this is a historic reality. It's been going on a long time, and they are coming. And this is number two in your notes. False greatness is achieved by shortcuts and connections. You're probably familiar with this whole uh, way that this is playing out here. Jesus has just made this ultimate statement ironically, of I'm going to go to Jerusalem and lay down my life and die for you. And in the next breath, you've got Aunt Salome and Cousin James and Cousin John coming in and trying to squeeze him for a special position, a special appointment, as we're going to see right here. And he said to him, after they say, we want you to do whatever we ask of you, in verse 36, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Let's cut the bull. Give me the terms. Don't lobby me. Let's, what do you want? They say, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, you remember the narrative that Jesus just gave them? Here's what's going to happen. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be condemnation. There's going to be death. Then there's resurrection and glory. And that's the sequence. whole lot of unpleasant, and then God elevates and glorifies. They hear all of that. They're only interested in the glory. We'd like to skip the gore and get, get right to the glory. And this is human nature. We would all like to do this. We'd all like the shortcut. We, we would all like to just get the benefit without doing the hard work, right? And Jesus says to him, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. You don't know what you're asking. I don't hand out positions, you understand? I'm not a power broker, okay? There's a cost involved, and you can't afford it. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What is the cup that Jesus is gonna drink? It's the cup of judgment. It's the cup of wrath. 
He's going to be tried for something he did not do. He is utterly, completely innocent, and yet he is going to accept guilt. Now, speaking as a male, that is nigh unto impossible for us. We don't do that, all right? That is very hard. It's hard for us to admit when we are wrong and we know it. But to be accused of something that we know, we feel we are not guilty of, and just accept that guilt is the furthest thing from our mind. Let me challenge you guys to do a little experiment, though. I would like all you guys, this week when your wife says something to you, some criticism you think is unfair, to just keep your yap shut and just, just very honestly and authentically look at her and nod and say, I hear what you're saying. I'll work on that. I would just love to try that and see what happens. You might be surprised, okay? Inwardly, you're thinking, are you kidding? You're smoking beer. I'm not. What? Instead of thinking that, you just think, and he went like a lamb to the slaughter and did not open his mouth, right? He says, are you willing to drink this cup or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What does that mean? You're going to die. You're going to die. That's, I, this will be the baptism of death. Uh, it's number three in your notes, true greatness involves dying. You want to be great? You have to die every day, every day, every day. Die to self, die to your desires, die to selfishness. Are you willing to be guilty and die? Number, verse 39, they say to him, we are able. They're so naive. When they make this request, they're only thinking about the glory. That's all they're thinking. It's like they see that guy from the movie Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you saw that. It's a great film. It's based on a true story. Uh, Desmond Doss of Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, during World War II, he was a conscientious objector, did not believe in using a gun, and yet he wanted to serve his country, so he goes into battle without a weapon. He gets the Medal of Honor. Great, great story. It'd be like if James and John saw Desmond Doss wearing his Medal of Honor, and they come up to him, they're like, man, that is nice. Thinking about getting me one of those bad boys. Where'd you get yours? And Desmond Dawson would be like, well, um, you know, in 1945, I was in Okinawa, and I was serving with the 307th Infantry Regiment, and we climbed this 400-foot-tall cliff called Hacksaw Ridge, and we got up on top of that thing, we came under heavy artillery fire, mortar fire, and we got cut to ribbons. And a bunch of our guys got blown up, and a lot of them got maimed, and they said, retreat, retreat, but 75 of our boys were lying bleeding on the battlefield. And so I ran out there without any weapon at my side, picked them up, carried them all one by one on my back to the cliff, lowered them down on these cargo nets using a special knot that only I knew how to tie. And while I was doing this, I got injured by grenade fragments and my arm got shattered by a sniper's bullet. Can't use that anymore. And then they offered to give me medical treatment, but I refused it before other men who were more seriously injured got help. And that's how I got this Medal of Honor. And James and John, I hear that and go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, right. So you think Amazon? (laughs) We want the shortcut. And Jesus says to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Medals of honor are often given to widows for a reason. You have to die. And he's saying to these guys, you're going to die. You will drink this cup. You will be baptized. He knows. Why? Because he's God and he's sovereign. James will be the first martyr of the 12. He'll be beheaded by Herod. Jesus knows this. 
John will be the last martyr of the 12. They're going to try to kill him, and supernaturally God will preserve him. Fox's book of martyrs tells us that they tried to boil John in oil, and he lived. And as an old man, he's exiled to Patmos, Greek Isle, where he writes the book of Revelation, and then he dies, having fulfilled God's purpose. And what he's saying to them is what he's saying to you and me right now, and it's this. God knows you will die. God knows when you will die. God knows how you will die. And God knows what you should do until you die. And I might add that he will empower you to do what you should do until you die. And we read in verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The ten were indignant. The other disciples, they're just... Now, what are they indignant about? Do they, are they taking offense for Jesus? Are they, are they just shocked and clutching their pearls that these guys would be so ignorant as to the true meaning of greatness in the eyes of Jesus? They're just offended for... No, they're indignant because James and John think they're better than they are. And they don't like that. And that is human nature too. See, these other 10 don't get Jesus' words any more than James or John. And this is number four. False greatness fosters resentment and craves power. There's entitlement. There's hurt feelings. How dare you say you're better than us? What gives you the... Peter's probably puffing out his chest going, you couple of jack wagons, you think you're better than me, really? Judas is over there going... Dang, I wish I thought of that first. And in verse 42, we see that Jesus senses the other disciples don't get it either. And so he has them all sit down. Again, this is the second take a knee, boys, that we have in this passage. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He's saying, the way you're acting right now, you're acting like the people that you despise. The guys that you claim you can't stand the most are what you are trying to become. Do you not realize that? You're so naive that you think that this is greatness and it's not. It's not. He says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. This isn't greatness. Let me tell you what greatness is. And this is number five in your notes. And this is the crux of this entire message. This is the crux of this entire passage right here, so don't miss it. Number five, true greatness serves God. How? By serving people. Serving people. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, all right? Right in the margin, get used to different. You wanna be great? You've got to be a servant. The word here is diakonos. We get our word deacon from that. That's what a deacon is supposed to be. In some churches, to be a deacon, people get puffed up. They think, I'm important. I'm hot. I'm big stuff. No, you're a servant. That's what the Bible says a deacon is. You want to be great? You must be a servant. Or if you don't want to be a servant, you don't want to be great. Not truly great. You just want what the world masquerades as great. And then he says, verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be, and he uses a different word, not diakonos, he uses the word doulos. It means slave. He takes it up a notch. 
You want to be number one? You got to be a slave. You want to be a, a, a great? You got to be a deacon. You got to be a servant. Servant to who? You're a servant of God, ultimately, but the direct relation of your service is not to God, but to man. Which man? All of them. Slave to all. There's no job too low. You serve wherever there is a need. There's no person too small, too insignificant. There's no hill too steep that you will not serve. You do all things as unto the glory of God. And I know we want the quick payoff, but this is the way of the kingdom. When I was in college, I went to Liberty University and I I was very blessed. My sophomore year, I auditioned and I made a vocal group called The Sounds of Liberty. And, and it, was a tr- it was a tremendous privilege to be on this group because it was a full-ride scholarship. I didn't have to pay for school. I got a book stipend. I got a meal stipend. I got a wardrobe stipend. I was on a platform every week. I was on a televised program with the chancellor of the school who was also the pastor of the local megachurch. It was a guy named Jerry Falwell. And we traveled the country on his private plane and we made appearances at rallies and other churches and speaking engagements. I got to meet a lot of important people. I met dignitaries and politicians and, and household name religious figures and things like that. I got to record, uh, record studio albums and had tremendous opportunity. Uh, everybody knew my name. When they saw me, they knew me on campus. I thought I was a big deal. And then I graduated, and one of the first jobs I took was at a little church in South Dakota on a staff of two, and I was the executive pastor, excuse me, the administ- uh, what was I, the associate pastor, and what that means in a church that size is you get to do all the jobs that the lead pastor doesn't have time to do. And so I wore a lot of hats. I was the youth guy. I was the music guy. I was the children's worship guy at Awana. And I led evangelism on Monday nights. And I did all these things. And during the week, I kept office hours and I did some rather menial tasks. And one of my weekly jobs at this little church was I had to change the sign, the marquee sign. You don't see a lot of marquee signs these days, but they used to have these little pithy uh, 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 mottos and slogans and whatnot, or maybe there'd be an announcement about something happening on Wednesday night or whatever it is. And so I would change that every week. And in South Dakota, in the month of February, there occurs this incredibly ungodly weather. And I remember distinctly trudging out to the sign in snow about that deep, bundled from head to toe. And the way a marquee works is you got to lift up this plexiglass cover and I would bring a mop handle, jam it in the snow and prop up this plexiglass cover. And you had to take out all of the letter tiles one by one and you had to slide them to the end on these grooves and get them out of there. And you had to be, you had to be very careful because uh, I couldn't grip them with gloves. So I had to take my gloves off. So my hands were freezing and the tiles were coated with ice and they were wet and they were sharp on the corners, So they'd cut my hands up and I would take those out and I'd stuff those letters in one pocket and I had the other message in perfect order that I had assembled inside and I had to be very careful that I got them in in the right sequence or I had to start all over. And so I'm sliding these letters in and lo and behold, I realize as the snow is coming down and the wind is blowing and I'm shivering, I realize that I'm missing the letter F. I've got no F. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And then I remember I have taken some letters off. And I looked through the letters and I got a letter L. And then I recall, I got a Sharpie marker in the back pocket. 
and I don't want to go back inside. And so I take it out, I take the lid off, and I get my L, and I turn it upside down, and I start scribbling a leg in the middle of that L so I could turn it into an F. And as I'm doing this, the wind is blowing and, it, it, and it's knocking that plexiglass cover way up high in the air and, and a truck comes by about that time and splatters me with icy slush. I get it in my mouth and my eyes, down my coat and all this stuff and then a big gust of wind blows that cover up. The mop handle falls over and the cover comes down, slams me in the back of the head and I spill all my tiles except for my L. And I'm standing there with a dried out Sharpie and an L that I've been trying to turn into an F. And I have two thoughts occur to me as I recalled how a year and a half prior I was Mr. Big Stuff on campus at Liberty and now I am mutilating marquee tiles. And I think to myself, Grim, you have hit rock bottom. And then the second thought popped into my head and it was not my own, it was the Lord. And he said, no, Grim, you are learning about greatness because you are learning about true servanthood. Do all things unto the Lord. Serve me by serving men. And the words of Christ here come one week before he is going to meet with these same 12 guys in an upper room, and he's going to gird himself with a towel. And the creator of the universe is going to kneel down and wash the grimy dirt from the feet of all 12 of these guys. Before he goes on and does something eternal for them at Calvary, which Paul writes about in Philippians 2, describing him as having emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human form, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. In your notes, there's a line there. It says, if Jesus can serve people by dying for them, I can serve by. And there's a blank. And what you write in that blank is between you and the Lord. But if you need some inspiration, there's a paradigm, there's a vehicle that God gives us to practice, to exercise, to be molded by servanthood, and it's called the local church. And there are ministries here where you can practice your serve. You can get plugged into children's ministry, first impressions ministry. We've got a production team. I lead a young adults ministry. There's any number of things on the seat back in front of you is a serve card. You can take a look at that. You can make a commitment on that card if you'd like to begin practicing your serve. Letting God shape you. You could turn that into an usher at the end of the service today. But I want to challenge you. Make this the greatest week of your life. Embrace God's paradigm for greatness. Be who he wants you to be. You want to be great with man? You follow the world's paradigm. You want to be great with God? Be a servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would ever seek that which is ultimately pleasing to you. That we would reject man's definitions of that which is worthwhile and that we would pursue the eternal because everything else is fleeting, everything else is kindling, and we want to invest in eternity. I pray your blessings upon everybody here today. In Jesus' name, amen.